0: Welcome to the Outlines podcast. My name's Jess Carter, and this is part two of my look into the 1961 abduction and murder of 12-year-old schoolgirl Linda Smith. If you've not yet heard part one, then I suggest you check it out before listening to this episode, because I'm going to be referring back to facts mentioned there. For those of you who have heard it already, thank you for joining me again And thank you to those who have made contact on social media to share your thoughts on the case. My hope, and that of Linda's family, is that we can generate renewed interest in finding the person responsible for her murder and bring someone to justice before it's too late. The more we share and the more we talk, the better that chance becomes. All the relevant contact information will be included in the show notes below, so please rate, review and share. And let's help make sure that Linda is remembered. And maybe one day her family can find the closure that they deserve. We're going to start this episode where we ended the last, on Friday the 20th of January 1961, with part time poacher, 72 year old retired labourer Harold Richardson, in a field just off of Stackwood Road in Hadley Heath. It was there that he discovered Linda's body, laying arms out and face down in the soil, neatly covered in her coat with her head hidden underneath its hood. She was missing her right shoe and had been strangled with her own school scarf. In 2013, Harold's nephew, Dr John Gorrod, would to tell the East Anglian Daily Times, You have to remember that you were dealing with a countryman, a countryman who had been through the wars. He survived as a soldier in the Great War. He must have seen enough death to last him a lifetime. Nevertheless, he was definitely upset about finding Linda. I'm pretty certain it did live with him for the rest of his life. That day, Harold knew immediately whose body he had found, and quickly made his way back down the road to his neighbour's son-in-law, who he knew to have a telephone, and then the police were contacted. It took no more than half an hour for officers to descend upon the scene. First to arrive were men from Sudbury Police Station, and it wasn't long before more officers appeared, as well as police photographer Dennis Sinclair. They began by closing off Stackwood Road between Polstead and Hadley Heath. And then they waited, for they could do nothing more before Francis Camps, the pathologist, arrived. When Gemma and I travelled to where Linda's body was found, I tried to picture the scene. Policemen from all over the Suffolk and Essex area awaiting the arrival of Dr Camps, idling away the time by lighting hurricane lamps against the darkness and cooking drinks on little stoves to keep themselves warm and all the while, Linda laying on the ground close by. It was around nine in the evening when Dr Camps arrived from London, accompanied by Detective Inspector McCafferty. They were greeted by Ernest Barquay, the man in charge of the missing persons hunt for Linda, and the Chief Constable of Essex, Mr W. J. Ridd. Dr Camps immediately set about examining the scene, and Linda herself, as photographers worked to record the area, before her body was transported to West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds. Back in Linda's home village of Earl's Cone, her father Robert was met by Superintendent Jack Mannings, who had by now been called in to head up the murder investigation, and he accompanied Robert to the hospital to formally identify Linda's body. By 11.30 the following morning, Superintendent Mannings of Scotland Yard issued a statement detailing Linda's identification and asking anyone who thought they may have seen a girl matching her description in North Essex or South Suffolk between 4.30 and 5.30 on the evening of Monday the 16th of January to contact the police if they had any information at all.
1: first became interested in Linda's case um, through my late father. He was a horticulturalist um, who had contracts with the Essex showground in Great Lees. And as a young lad, I used to go out and help him quite a bit. Uh, And one day when we were just having a break, I looked over the road from the main entrance of the showground toward a wood that was opposite on the old road between Braintree and Chelmsford. And I just asked my father what the wood was. And he said it was called Wood. He said in that wood, a young girl was found murdered. And we'd be talking about 1968 when he told me. And he said that she was from Earl's Cone, but he knew no more details. He did not know her name or age or anything. And and it fascinated me.
0: This is Richard White. He's written a book on Linda's case. It's called Little Miss Friendly, The Murder and Memory of Linda Ann Smith. I quoted it in the last episode, and it's been invaluable over the course of my research. He's talking about the first time he ever heard about Linda's death, when he was still a small boy, maybe eight or nine years old, impressionable and interested in the wisdom his father chose to impart, although, as it turned out, almost all those details were wrong. The woods were called bushy woods, and they were probably not where Linda was killed, they were searched in the aftermath of the discovery of her body. The woods are situated close to Ben's Cafe, that cafe I mentioned in part one, where a little girl and much older man were seen purchasing tea by proprietor Stanley Hogg. Ben's Cafe sat on the old A131, leading into Great Lees, and a short distance away from the Essex Agricultural Showground, which in turn is opposite Bushy Woods. While there were several tips called in by the public, cars being spotted acting suspiciously on Stackwood Road, a man in a brown trilby asking directions to the murder site, and red minis behaving unusually, there were only two of these call-ins that police explored in depth. On Monday the 23rd of January, police received a call from lorry driver Mr Arthur Lucas, who reported seeing a shoe very much like the one Linda was missing, near the main entrance to the showground. On its own, this isn't much of anything, but they also received word from a different witness, a woman who claimed to see a man taking a small girl into those woods late at night. It's dense, dark woodland, and despite the fact that it lies 30 miles away from Stackwood Road in the opposite direction from Earl's Cone, Superintendent Jack Mannings and his team accompanied by tracker dogs, methodically searched the area a number of times, as well as ditches, hedgerows surrounding the woods, and long stretches of the main road. Despite their efforts, nothing was ever found.
2: My eleventh um, birthday, because because my birthday is on the ninth of January, and it was only a few days after that that she went missing. Um, so um, you know she was tw- she was twelve in the November before. So we were quite close together, really. A couple of years difference, so we grew up quite close. We were like sort of friends. We did things together. Um, obviously, played together. Um. Yeah, I think we generally were quite close.
0: What kinds of things did Linda like to do?
2: Um, well, she loved animals and and running errands, things like that. I know we played mud pies in the garden. And, um, and I know at night time we would used to take in turns to read um, make-up stories for our other siblings before they all went to bed. So we had different stories um, most nights, so i say we, we, we liked doing make-up games. We we made, like, little houses at the bottom of the garden with bits of mud and um, little tea parties we would have. Uh, um, and we'd go for walks. Well, no, we didn't walk that far, but we used to do just things together, as children of that age, 11- and 12-year-olds, would do. And we're obviously playing with dolls. Like nowadays, they'll be playing with their mobile phone. <laughs> But would still be mummy and daddy sort of thing, you know, with our own children, with our own little family, um, and you know, and dressing our dolls up up being mum and dad. Would me mum would have um, made all the clothes for our dolls that we had for Christmas. I remember one year um, we had mum had made got these baby dolls and she'd make all the clothes for them. We wouldn't know about it, and she would make all the all the little baby clothes for it. And um, and we had a um, a, a carricot pram. And um, I remember that we'd put the, the babies in there. And then we both walk up to my um, na- Nana Shaman's, um, f- uh, f- uh in the afternoon during Christmas. And we'd take our little
0: babies there. And we'd be so proud of them. remember that. Somewhere on my shelves, I own a slim black book called A Country Camera. In this volume, the author has compiled pictures of rural English village life in the early days of photography. I pull it out to study one day, wiping dust off of the cover. As I flick through, I see similarities to modern country living. There are men working in fields in the sun, children and adults alike standing on and around hay bales, and poachers proudly holding up their catches. Linda was born in 1948, Sheena 1950. Their childhoods were spent in a rural village not dissimilar to the ones whose photographs I study. By 1961, carts may have become cars and roads were much improved, but in Ells Cone the structure of self-contained village life remained very much the same. Men worked in the iron foundry and their shoes were fixed by the local cobbler. There was the news agents, the butchers, and just up from that, a bakery with its own cafe attached. When I talk to Linda's sisters, they have similar memories of their times growing up here. Here's Fiona, who was two when Linda died, discussing her childhood in the aftermath of the murder.
3: We all looked after ourselves, so we just got on with it really. Out the garden, We had pets, we used to play the pets, dogs, cats, rabbits be with them a lot and then go out and play a lot in the fields and what have you, so we weren't closeted or anything like that. We weren't sort of, you know we were allowed to go and do what we wanted within reason obviously. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we were we were allowed to go out and play. I asked her and Petra about life in Earls Cone. About their families and how they felt living in the village where Linda disappeared.
4: I was born three years later. And dad always used to call me the healing child. And I, I was aware that I was treated a little bit differently differently to my other brothers and sisters. Perhaps a little bit more protected, but we had so much more freedom. You know, we wasn't sort of told to come home at a certain time or don't go to this place or go don't go there. We still had a lot of freedom, which, you know, it's surprising really considering what happened to Linda. You know, you thought your parents would be a bit more restrictive on where you went and what you did, but we actually we weren't. So I suppose in some respect that was quite good, you know. But, I mean, a lot of the people in the village knew who all of us were. They knew we were the Smith children. And in some ways, I suppose, a little bit protected, you know, because everybody knew who you were. It just felt like a, an extended part of your family, you know. Especially, like, the older um, villagers, you know, like your teachers and old family friends and like the vicar and all that type of thing, they all knew about what happened, but they all knew who all of us were, you know. So it's sort of... It's just how it felt like when we was growing up, you know.
0: When I ask Fiona about this, about feeling protected by those older members of the village, she starts out with a very different take.
3: Yeah.
0: You've grown up with your friends,
3: and you know your friends' families... And being a village, we all sort of you get a, a village close knit environment. So I wouldn't say they looked out for us. Maybe they did subconsciously. I don't know. But I didn't. I didn't get that feeling. They're just like my friends, mum and dad, and me auntie Ivy and auntie Joan or whoever down the road. So I don't know. Perhaps they did. I don't know. I'm not aware of it.
0: What do you do? You remember much about Earl's as a place to live? What was it like?
3: No, yeah, fine, it was, it was a nice village. Strangely enough, I always felt safe there. <laughs> um, lots of friends. Um, yeah, people, I suppose. I can see where Petra's coming from, because everyone looked out for everyone. But again, it was that time, of that era, small village community. And that's quite tomboyish anyway, so you just, you just go and do your own thing and get on with your friends and just get on, with it really But so, yeah, it's a village.
0: Could be worse places to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> for those of Linda's siblings who do not remember or were not alive when it happened, Linda's death is almost no more than a story. Something which they know occurred and they want answers for, but they don't necessarily feel as if they can help. When I first contacted Petra to ask about interviewing her family for the podcast. She said yes, but... In her case, not having been born when Linda died, perhaps it didn't have the same impact on her as on her brothers and sisters. But it's exactly this that's so interesting. For Petra, Fiona and Melvin, they grew up in a family that had suffered a great tragedy, and I'll talk about the impact on their parents in the next episode. But for those younger kids they seemed to have, for the most part, lived a normal village life like anyone else. It didn't really much affect the way they were raised. They had freedom to do as they wished, within reason. And while their parents were strict, they were no more so than any other family.
5: Mum... Mum was strict. Was, we always had a,
0: a family life.
5: We, we used to do a paper round. We used to get half past five in the morning. And in the village, Mr Who's and that. I used to get the paper up, do my paper around Queen's Road, have a tea with Nana and off I go. And I think one day I think one bloke did follow me and I went straight into a police station. And that. Yeah it affects mum quite a lot I think. And I think it affected I was more protected from my children now, even now. I only need to know where they are. We've got a rule in our house that if we go away, we phone when we get there and we phone when we get back. That's the rule in our house. It's been there since I've had the, my children. So they've had a life and getting back to mum, our life with mum and dad and the others, I think we had a fairly happy life. You know, mum was strict, dad was strict, but for the right reasons, I think. I think I did scare her one day when I was at school and I wanted to go with my friend to her house. And Mum said no, but I went behind the back and went with my friend and she ended up calling the police. And I think she got frantic then. I got told by the police because of Mr Swinburne. I didn't really like him anyway. <laughs> but, you know, obviously now I'm a mother and a grandparent. I know how Mum felt. It, it, you know, you know, it, not a but I want my children safe. I need to know where they are, and vice versa.
0: Maybe because Jane was eight when Linda was murdered, she seems to have been more cautious than the younger kids. And when I asked Sheena what life was like afterwards, she too recalled something of the impact that her sister's death had had upon the family.
2: Well, obviously. It was a very sad time for a long, long time. Um, my mum wasn't one for giving us all cuddles and things like that. And because I was the elders, I had to help look after the other ones, did a lot of the um, helped with the housework around the house. So um, I suppose I grew up very quickly because of the responsibility had changed. Um and help because obviously, mum still had two very young children. Um, so and because to help her with that, I guess that's what you know. I, I didn't have the mother and daughter connection, I don't think I just helped with what needed doing, um, with the siblings and that, so um.
4: truth i really i don't know oh i just looked at the photos and because she was just a little girl that got killed at the end of the day i didn't have the close relationship that my sisters do because i never knew her you know i'm like an outsider would look at the photos you know i was aware that she was my sister but that that was about it you know
0: as a true crimes researcher I spend hours scrolling through microfilm, reading unconnected books searching for a brief mention or an unfound connection, or trawling the internet looking for facts. In a digital age, much can be found with the click of a button, or an online newspaper search, and archives often stretch back 70, 80 years, maybe more, and while they're not always of the highest quality, there are photographs accompanying most of the articles, These are of countryside being searched, victims' clothing or reenactments, police looking intent and pointing meaningfully at the exact moment that the photographer presses the shutter. And then there are those that affect me most the photographs of victims, which after a while you understand take a few recognisable forms. The first is the police composite hair that has been changed and not yet documented. Maybe a facial injury added. Second, there are those chosen because they look the most accurate, the most up-to-date, or the most natural. But third, and by far the worst, are the ones provided by the family or friends of a victim, which have been chosen because the person is smiling or happy. In Richard's book, there are many photographs like this of Linda, but one in particular stands out to me. It's in black and white, taken in bright sunlight. In it, Linda kneels in untidy grass. She wears a white dress with tall, puffy sleeves, and her hair is held back from her face by what looks like a white ribbon. She isn't looking at the camera, perhaps because of the sun, and so her eyes appear downcast, but she is smiling, with her hands casually on her legs, either side of a large rabbit who looks one bounce away from escape. The photograph is simply entitled Linda in the Garden with her pet rabbit.
1: When I was researching at the newspaper archives in Hendon, it was the first time I saw Linda's face and that really hit me. It was, it was like she was, a, she was like a child that I'd known all my life. And didn't know her at all. But once I I saw the photo, I knew I was going to find it. And I saw the photo of her and it, it really did hit home.
0: A cold day, Tuesday, the sixth of February, twenty eighteen, when Richard and I meet in person for the first time. At just before eleven a.m., I wait for him outside Elscown Library, which sits in the middle of the high street, on the opposite side to what was once Hughes the Newsagents. Despite not knowing him, I recognise Richard almost immediately as he crosses the road. Just before he smiles and waves, he's wearing all black with a bright white scarf, taller than my five foot nine by what seems like some way. We shake hands, and then walk to the little terraced house where Linda once lived. We're here to retrace her last known steps. I talked in part one about Linda's final movements, and I'm going to deconstruct them now, but bear with me, because it can get complicated. Remember, It was just after four on the afternoon of the 16th of January when Linda returned to drop off her school things at her house before going to her great-grandmother Emily's for tea and to run her errand. And these two things are the first points on our timeline. We know for sure that Linda was at Emily's by 4.25. When Richard and I walked the distance, it's no more than a few minutes for slow-walking adults. Before running her errand... Linda had tea with Emily and her great-aunt Ivy, and it is here that the timeline starts to drift, because they told police that she left at 4.50 to go and buy Emily her magazine. But their time cannot be right, because we know that Linda was at the cobbler's shed asking for tobacco tins by 4.50 at the latest. Ignore the traffic in this next clip. The high street in Ells is busy in the middle of the day and I've had to edit out the cobbler's name so parts of Richard's sentences sound a little off in places. She came here, she went in to see
6: and asked if he'd got any tobacco tins and he said he didn't have any. And he said to her that it's very cold out and you should get yourself home. And he he came out as she came out he shut shut the shop up behind him and he went up the road to um, what was then the co-op bakery because it also had a cafe in the front. He went for his tea there every night after he'd shut up. So he, he had to he had to shut up to make sure he got to the bakery before it closed. Okay. He said Linda Linda turned to follow him, and uh, he went into the bakery. He never turned round again, so he doesn't know where she went from there. said that he shut up shop at about quarter to five. Quarter two, ten two, give, a, give or take a little bit.
0: What we have here is our window of time between four-ish, when Linda arrived home from school, and four-fifty, when she stopped to visit the cobbler. If we say that by 4.25, she must have been at Emily and Ivy's, allowing time to talk to her mother at home, and then get to Queen's Cottages, we have a 25-minute gap left to fill. I think we can surmise that when Linda headed out to run her errand, she was planning to go straight to the newsagents, because she turned left, and went along the cinder path, and then up Burroughs Road. She was seen by Mrs. Beryl Hurd emerging from the cinder path of what she believed to be 4.30. Mrs. Hurd knew the rough time because, as she told the police, who she spoke to the next day, when she arrived home, Mrs. Dale's diary, which started at half four, had just begun on the radio. Mrs. Hurd remembered Linda and her son Gary playing very briefly before Linda continued up Burroughs Road towards the newsagents. This is where matters get a little more confusing, We have to assume that Linda had no plans when she first left Queen's Cottages to visit the cobblers, because she knew he would be closed by 4.50, and the quickest route to get there means that instead of taking the cinder path, she would have had to have turned right out of Emily and Ivy's house and walked up Queen's Road, which brings you out on the high street just up from the cobbler's shed. As we know, Linda went the other way, She must have passed the newsagents and chosen not to go straight in as she made her way down the high street. If we imagine she left Mrs Hurd at 4.35 or 4.40 at the latest, remembering that Mrs Dale's diary was on when Beryl got home, Linda would have been passing the newsagents any time between 4.40 and 4.45. This fits with the cobbler's statement that he saw Linda at about 4.50 but probably no later. The only issue we now have to address is Linda's friend, Margaret Matin, who said she saw Linda standing outside the newsagents that evening. And I think it's wise to remember that it was January, and it would have been dark when Margaret saw her. But I'll let Richard explain as he spoke to Margaret while he was writing his book. Again, the audio isn't brilliant, so I apologise.
6: She said this was at about five to five. She didn't see Linda go in and she had nothing with her. And when Margaret came out a few minutes later, Linda was gone. Although they were friends, they didn't actually exchange any words at all. Margaret was absolutely adamant that that was the time, and it was Linda.
0: Opinion is divided here. Between those who believe that Margaret saw Linda outside the news at five to five, and those who think she must have been mistaken. That she saw her earlier, or that it wasn't Linda at all, but her sister Sheena, who despite being younger, was around the same height, and did look similar. Personally, I yo-yo between the two camps, though I'm not being entirely fair to you listeners here, because there's more I'm not yet saying that may influence what you think Linda's last steps were, but that's for the next episode to discuss. For now, let's say that if everyone is telling the truth, then this is the most logical timeline of her last known movements. At 4.05, Linda arrived home from school. By 4.25, she was with Emily and Ivy at Queen's Cottages, and at about 4.40, she emerged from the cinder path, heading up Burroughs Road past the newsagents with maybe a brief stop to glance in the window, before continuing down the high street, and at 4.45 to 4.50, reaching the Cobbler's. By five to five, she was back at the news agents, standing outside, looking at the window displays. But she never made it in. After Richard and I finish following Linda's last steps, we go down the high street to a little cafe where we sit and talk about the case. We discuss what we think happened, the timeline, the circumstances, and I tell him about my work on the podcast and my hopes for these episodes. After an hour or so, Richard sits back and says, Do you want to go and visit her grave? And I do. Proceeds from Richard's book paid for Linda's headstone, which up until a few years ago had been a simple wooden cross. As we leave the cafe, the snow that has been promised for days starts to lightly fall, and we walk in the direction of Burroughs Road, which is the location of the little Baptist cemetery where Linda is buried. We take the route that means we walk the cinder path, and I can see why everyone who I speak to that's been to Wells Cone in pursuit of Linda's last movements feels as if the path is special somehow. It's narrow. No space for two people to walk together, and roughly tarmacked. Tall wooden fences and those of corrugated tin run the length of the path before they give way to hedges and tall holly trees. It smells of damp, and while I walk, I think that I can't be the first person to feel as if I'm treading almost exactly in Linda's shoes. On Thursday... January the 26th, 1961, mourners gathered at the Baptist church, next door to Linda's home, to pay their last respects. The previous evening, Robert and Patricia had said goodbye to Linda privately, while she lay at rest in the Baptist chapel. Patricia died a couple of years ago, but Richard interviewed her for his research, and she told him about that experience, how Robert had assured her that Linda would look peaceful, and that she did... She said, there was not a mark on her. It was as if she had gone to sleep and not awoken. It was hard to believe that she had died under such circumstances. In photographs from the day of the funeral, as Robert and Patricia walked into the church, his hands are clasped together and she has her arm hooked through the crook of his elbow. Their heads are bowed as they follow the little coffin up the steps and inside. After the service, she was taken in convoy with the mourners behind, the short distance to the cemetery where she was to be buried. Lining the side of the road as the cars drove by were civilians and police in uniform who stopped a salute from outside their incident caravan. The mourners turned down Burroughs Road, where in the pub on the corner police had overtaken a back room for use as a conference centre, and they made their way that last few hundred yards to the graveyard. Standing at the back of the cemetery were three men in crombie coats who held their hats clasped behind their backs. One of these was the head of the investigation, Jack Mannings of Scotland Yard. At the graveside itself, photographed by pressmen, were a multitude of wreaths, including one from Linda's parents, in the shape of a white rabbit. Only a couple of weeks before our visit, it was the anniversary of Linda's death. And when I talk to Jane, she tells me...
5: When I go to Linda's grave, I look after that because the others can't come down. But I can always go down there when I go... In the village, I go there, I say it quite often, but I'll go when I can, sometimes, maybe once a month, might be a couple of months or whatever, and just sort out the grave or something, we we'll put flowers on for a birthday, etc., etc., et cetera, like that. <laughs> well, she's not forgotten. She no, we'll never forget her. And just want something done, mainly for my mum.
0: As Richard and I stand at the grave, I look at the flowers that have been left for her, an assortment of spring colours and little silver baubles. There's a wreath made from a fir tree and nestled underneath it all, a small ornament of a rabbit. Richard turns to me and says, it's difficult to believe that she's buried under here. And it is. I stand silently, and try to imagine the girl with the rabbit on her knee in the sunshine, while in the present day the snow falls lightly around us, settling sparsely on the frozen ground. I don't know how to feel except sad, because she was a twelve-year-old girl who liked animals and time on her own, and being with her family. And yet her case has never been solved, and her parents never got answers. But there were clues and there were people of interest. And I'll discuss all that next time on the Outlines podcast. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed, and produced by me, Jess Carter. The music was composed and performed by Elias Hardy. I'd like to thank Linda's family for their support and for providing me with time, photographs and information to help compile these episodes, and also to Richard White, who has been very patient and helpful with my many questions.